Well, this morning, I'd like to start with a top 10 list. Here are the top 10 spiritual gifts not listed in the Bible. The top 10 spiritual gifts not in the Bible. Number 10, untwisting cellophane wrapped candy during the sermon without making any noise. Now that's a true gift. Number nine, teaching three-year-old Sunday school all by yourself. Number eight, holding a sneeze for the duration of a sermon. A much underappreciated gift. Number seven, correctly pronouncing the Bible's genealogies. Number six, unlocking a car door in the church parking lot with a coat hanger. A definite spiritual gift. Number five, matchmaking single adults. That could get dicey. (laughs) Number four, turning to Old Testament books without using the table of contents. Number three, passing communion trays one-handed. Number two, clapping on beat. (laughs) Something that certainly many of you don't have, that gift. (laughs) And number one, we could use more of this. Coming up with funny jokes for a sermon. A definite spiritual gift. These are the spiritual gifts not found in Scripture. But for the Bible's discussion on legitimate gifts, the two most important chapters are 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. You remember at the close of chapter 12, Paul told the church at Corinth to desire spiritual gifts. To desire the best gifts, he said. All the gifts of the Spirit are beneficial, but spiritual gifts are not the most important issue in church life. For there is a best gift, there is a more excellent way. The greatest of God's gifts is love. You see, the Corinthian Christians were flaunting their gifts. They were rattling off in tongues and trying to act spiritual rather than loving one another. Love had become an afterthought. And so Paul tells them in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In chapter 14, Paul's going to explain the value of the vocal gifts, tongues and prophecy and interpretation of tongues. But first he says, he makes it clear, divine language without divine love is just noise. Verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Supernatural revelations, even mountain-moving faith is futile compared to the power of love. You can have a juiced-up faith strong enough to bench-press Stone Mountain, but it's worthless unless it's coupled with love. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You can die a martyr's death and make sacrifices all along the way. Travel to Iran, preach Jesus in the streets, get yourself beheaded. And if you're not motivated by love for God and love for other people, then God remains unimpressed. See, love suffers long. I'll never forget an interview I heard years ago in a radio program. 
the interviewer was talking to a mother who had just been diagnosed with cancer. And this mom had been given a choice, a young mother. Either live out the rest of her days on the beaches of Acapulco, enjoying the life she had left, or she could undergo rounds of grueling, brutal radiation and chemotherapy with just the slightest hope of extending her life maybe two to four years. This lady chose to extend her life, if only for a day. Here's what she wrote to her three small children. I've chosen to survive for you, for this has horrible costs, including pain, the loss of my good humor, and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer. That minute could be the one in which you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. You see, love suffers long. And it's kind. Love isn't harsh or mean. It's tender. It's sensitive to other people's situation. Love does not envy. It never wants the blessing that God has chosen for someone else. It reads the name tags on the gifts before it grabs one. It's happy for the person who gets the nicer gift. Love does not parade itself. In other words, it doesn't show off. It doesn't attract attention to itself. It's not puffed up. Love is humble. It doesn't mind picking up a towel and a bowl and washing some dirty feet. In fact, the purer the love the lesser the pride. And love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Love love never seeks to embarrass others. Rather, it builds up the other guy. Reminds me of the young bride-to-be who went to purchase material for a wedding dress. Well, she asked for the noisiest material available. The clerk thought, that's an odd request. That is, until the young lady explained her reasons. My fiance is blind. And I want him to hear me when I reach the altar so he won't be embarrassed. See, love does not seek its own, is not provoked. As the NIV puts it, keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't hold a grudge. Love thinks no evil. It doesn't jump to negative conclusions. It gives the benefit of the doubt. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Friend, never give up on love. Even when you tire of extending it, even when you're frustrated over its rejection, keep on loving. Reject lesser methods. Just keep loving people and loving people and loving people, for love never fails. Verse 8, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. In eternity, spiritual gifts will no longer be needed to compensate for the inadequacies we faced on earth. We won't need prophecy. God will speak to us face to face. We won't need tongues. We'll be fluent in all languages. And even words of knowledge won't be needed because we'll know all truth. Spiritual gifts are for time, not for eternity. Verse 9 tells us, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And the perfect he's talking about here is the perfection and completeness of heaven. And yet this is the verse that skeptics like to use to deny the continuance or the perpetuity of spiritual gifts. They interpret that which is perfect as the New Testament. The word translated perfect means complete. And thus they conclude that when the New Testament canon or list of books was finalized, then God pulled the gifts of the Spirit from circulation. They were no longer needed. Yet I couldn't disagree with that more. For starters, the New Testament was never intended to be a total revelation. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions seeing things in heaven that were not lawful for him to discuss or write in the New Testament. The seven thunders of Revelation 10 verse 4 were heard by John, but he was prohibited from recording them in the New Testament. My point is, is that that which is complete can't be the New Testament. See, we won't enjoy perfection until we get to heaven. That's when spiritual gifts will cease. When we enter God's glory, then we'll no longer need these special gifts. For now, the gifts of the Spirit are standard issue. Paul writes in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And this is the verse that every dad quotes every time he mows the lawn and has to pick up his kids' toys out from the front yard. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And this is the verse that one day we'll quote in heaven. One day we'll reach full maturity, spiritual adulthood. But that won't happen until we get to heaven. Then and only then will spiritual gifts cease. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. In the here and now, we see only dimly. You know, face-to-face, knowing as I am known, are phrases that speak of our heavenly experience. Complete knowledge isn't a characteristic in this life. In the here and now, there's no such thing as spiritual high death. Until we get to heaven, the reception will always be a little fuzzy. If we had 20-20 knowledge, we we wouldn't have to walk by faith, would we? But we don't, and we do. And this is why we need all the supernatural help we can get. Well, chapter 13 closes. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. As the old song puts it, without love you ain't nothing. Without love. Love is the most excellent way. Well, chapter 14 begins, pursue love. And desire spiritual gifts. There is a Christian denomination that has adopted as its official policy towards spiritual gifts the phrase, seek not, forbid not. But I think they should also add, and get not. For if you don't desire it, you're not going to receive it. In Luke 11, Jesus told his disciples, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When it comes to the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, we need to seek and to knock and to ask. The gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation are not just matters to believe, they are gifts to receive. And Paul adds, especially that you may prophesy. When legendary football coach Bear Bryant directed the Alabama Crimson Tide, he would observe the team's practices from a tower overlooking the practice field. The Bear trusted his assistant coaches to instruct the team and to follow the playbook. But when he wanted to address a particular situation, he would shout down on a bullhorn. And the gift of prophecy is God's bullhorn. See, God is in heaven's tower, and he watches us live our lives on the field. Our instruction is provided by the Bible and by the Holy Spirit. But there are occasions when God wants to address us specifically and personally, and so he picks up his bullhorn and he speaks to us directly. Prophecy is instant inspiration. It's like spiritual texting. It's like direct messaging from God himself. It's cool. The Hebrew word translated prophecy means to bubble up like a fountain or to tumble forth. The gift of prophecy is a message prompted by God's spirit that flows from my spirit through my mind and tumbles out of my mouth. Prophecy is extemporaneous. It's an ecstatic utterance. God puts his words in my mind and I speak them by faith. My mouth becomes God's mouthpiece. Amos 3 verse 8 declares, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God's Spirit most often speaks to us in the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But the gift of prophecy is compared to a lion's roar. He says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, the rest of chapter 14, Paul is going to contrast the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of tongues. And here, Paul's first point is this. Prophecy is a message from God to man, God speaking to us, whereas tongues is man talking to God. And if you've ever been involved in a hyper-Pentecostal church, this is your first red flag. For often a tongue is followed by a supposed interpretation, something like, Thus says the Lord, listen to me. It's as if the utterance in tongues is God's Spirit speaking to the group. But this is not what the Bible says. Tongues isn't God speaking to man, it's man speaking to God. Paul is clear. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Now, it could be in that meeting that the supposed interpretation was actually a prophecy from God. But if that's so, the tongue remained uninterpreted. Tongues is man speaking to God, not God speaking to man. Well, verse 3, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. 
See, prophecy is often thought of as foretelling the future. But a word of prophecy may or may not have a predictive element. See, the purpose of God conveying a word of prophecy is edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, it builds up, it stirs up, and it cheers up whichever is needed most. After we got married, for two years, Kathy and I struggled to have kids. Well, on the last weekend of May 1982, at a conference that we had attended, Kathy requested prayer. Well, as the ladies laid hands on her and prayed for her, one of the ladies prophesied over my wife. God spoke, by this time next year, you'll have a child. Wow. Well, Zach, my oldest son, was born on May the 29th, 1983. One year to the day that prophecy was fulfilled. And what kind of an effect do you think this prophecy has had on our family? It certainly built up our faith. It often stirs up Zach. What a legacy to know that your birth was foretold by God. And it cheers up his parents to know that even in the difficulties and trials of life, God has a plan and a purpose for our son's life. This is why Paul says that spiritual gifts, we need to desire spiritual gifts. And especially that we prophesy for it builds up, it stirs up, and it cheers up. Well, verse 4 explains why Paul prefers prophecy over tongues. He says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. If no one understands the tongue or the language that's been spoken, then it only just benefits the one who expressed it. It was an outlet for them. Prophecy, on the other hand, is God's message to the whole church. Everyone gets blessed by a word of prophecy. He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. I personally speak in tongues. It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful way to praise the Lord. Yet unless it gets interpreted, it benefits only the speaker, not the rest of the church. And when we gather together... The purpose is for the benefit of all. Verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Now, in Acts chapter 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the church... Jews from around the world had all gathered there in Jerusalem. It was a multilingual crowd. People of different languages were scattered out among the group. Of course, each of the disciples were Galilean. And yet the Spirit gave them the gift of tongues. And it caused them to speak in foreign languages unknown to them. But the listeners who were in the crowd that day were able to pick out their own native language. Strangers heard God praised in their mother tongue. It was a wonderful thing. And yet this was not the dynamic occurring in Corinth. For the Corinthians were all part of the same community. They all shared the same language. This was a local church. So when someone spoke in an unknown tongue, no one in the church knew what they were saying. 
In Corinth, it was best to go to church and share a biblical insight that would teach or exhort the others. He adds, verse 7, For even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In all messaging, communication is the key. If the hearers don't identify the dispatch, what's the point? Bugles in battle direct the troops. But if a soldier can't recognize a charge from a retreat, then the army's going to get defeated. Communication is what matters. So likewise, you, unless you utter by the, by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. The point is, in all of our church gatherings, clear communication is what matters. Now, verse 12. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Again, the Corinthians had become enamored with these spiritual gifts. But they had forgotten the purpose of the gifts. Like a baby sucking on a cell phone. They were missing out on the point of the cell phone. Church isn't for our self-entertainment or to show off our super spirituality. It's to build up the saints. He says, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So if you're in a small group of believers waiting on God in worship and suddenly the Spirit prompts you to speak in tongues and you do and no one else in the group interprets what's been uttered, then it's up to you, the person who uttered it, to pray for the interpretation. For if the tongue never gets interpreted, no one can benefit from what's been said. And the purpose of any church gathering is the benefit of all. Now verse 14 For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now here Paul takes a step back and he helps us define what it is we're discussing. He explains and defines the gift of tongues. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but not my understanding. The word tongues means languages or dialects. Thus, the gift of tongues is the spirit-given capacity to either praise God or pray to God in a language other than my own native tongue or any language that I may have learned. And through the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit liberates me to praise God in a free and uninhibited manner. I become fluent in my worship. Now, according to the Ethnologue website, there are 7,151 living languages in the world today. But of those 7,151 languages, I know only one. I feel cheated. I know English. And I know very little of it. 
The English language consists of 800,000 words. That's excluding the 500,000 technical terms. Yet in an average person's lifetime, he or she will only get around to using about 60,000 of those 800,000 words. And worse, the daily working vocabulary of the average English speaker is only about 7,000 words. That means that I use less than 1% of my own language, of the one language that I know. Now this isn't really a problem to me until I start to communicate a thought vital. And I can't find the right words to use. You ever had that experience? You can't find the right words. It's frustrating to go groping for words. There are moments when even the most eloquent person among us gets caught off guard and is at a loss for words. And this awkward articulation occurs most often in our emotional moments. When our hearts are full of love and joy. Or perhaps grief and sympathy. I mean, you're about to burst out with pent-up emotion. But you can't find the right word to express what it is you're feeling deep inside. At times I feel this toward Kathy. I try to communicate my love for her. But she's heard it before. I love you. Sounds so blasé. I can't afford diamonds, so I'm stuck. This is also a problem that I have in my fellowship with God. At times, I'm awed by His presence. I'm amazed by His love. I'm blown away with His blessing. And when I want to praise Him most, the speaker becomes speechless. I love you just doesn't seem to cut it. See, humans are like this funnel. The narrow neck of the funnel is our intellect. The wide base is our spirit. On the spiritual level, we're capable of experiencing deep emotions. Wide, a wide array of emotions. Yet all that our spirit feels has to be channeled through our constricted intellect and through a very limited vocabulary. And it's our narrowness that chokes off the flow of feelings and bottles up our emotions. It creates a frustration of expression. Yet here's where the Holy Spirit comes to our rescue. For God's Spirit knows every language that has ever been spoken. According to chapter 13, verse 1, he's even fluent in the language of the angels. I'm linguistically limited, but the Holy Spirit is not. Therefore, the Spirit can plant words into my mind, words that I might not know, but that accurately inarticulately express the depths of my heart. And as those words enter my mind, by faith I speak them, believing them to be the Holy Spirit's interpretation of my praise or my concern. It's through tongues that I become free and fluent rather than fumbling and frustrated. The gift of tongues bypasses my limitations, my mind, and my vocabulary and allows me to praise God in a flowing and beautiful and fulfilling way. Notice how Paul pits it in verse 14. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I like how Harold Horton explains it. He says, The gift of tongues sinks a well into the dumb profundities of the rejoicing spirit. 
liberating a jet of long-pent ecstasy that gladdens the heart of God and man. Have you never been in the presence of Jesus and felt inarticulate on the very verge of eloquence? We need to ask. We need to ask God for this wonderful gift. And then in verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. I can pray or even sing in tongues. Or I can pray or sing in a language that I understand. It all depends on the time and the place and the folks in attendance. He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Now notice again, tongues is called your giving of thanks. The gift is, is us speaking to God, not God speaking to us. It's always a prayer or a praise. And the idea here is that it's the time and the place and the people in attendance that are crucial. Paul is saying that in the public gatherings of the church, that is not the place for the practice of the gift of tongues. You see, when the church opened up their meetings to anybody and everybody, the uninformed person, as Paul puts it, as he mentions, the uninformed person is present. This is either an unbeliever or perhaps a believer who simply doesn't understand the gift. And if the point of us meeting together is to love and minister to this uninformed person, then why would we use a gift that we know he doesn't understand and won't appreciate? This is how we view it here at Calvary Chapel. Like in Corinth, our public meetings are full of folks that are just getting started in their Christian life. And if suddenly I started speaking in tongues, the novice would either be confused or he might think I'm weird. This is why Paul writes in verse 18, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church or in the public assembly, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says if he spoke in tongues more, he spoke in tongues more than anyone. Yet he realized that the gift wasn't for the public gathering of the church. Paul believed tongues was best practiced in a person's private devotional life or in a small group of informed believers, not in the public gatherings where the church ran the risk of confusing a newcomer. He tells us, verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In other words, spiritual gifts and common sense go together. A baby only cares about himself, and this is how some Christians behave, sadly. But being spiritual is being sensitive to others into the situation. Now, verse 21 is where the text gets a little tricky. He writes, In the law it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 28, verse 11, With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, 
not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, at first, verse 22 seems to contradict what Paul's just said. I thought tongues were for the informed believers, but here we're told that they're assigned to unbelievers. The key here is in understanding the context of Isaiah. In Isaiah 28, the prophet Isaiah had predicted Assyrian invaders, an army that would come to Jerusalem and sack the city. The Assyrians spoke of a foreign this, this, I'm sorry, this Assyrian spoke a foreign language. And thus when the Jews heard this unknown tongue being spoken in their streets, they would know that it was a sign from God that judgment had come. Thus for them, tongues was a sign to unbelievers, but it was a sign of judgment. So, getting back to Paul's argument, when an unbeliever enters a public gathering, and he hears someone speak in tongues, and he becomes confused, it's a sign of his judgment. The unbeliever's uncomfortable reaction is proof that he's unfamiliar with the things of God. It's a sign that he's been living alienated from God. And suddenly, by exposing him to this, you have heaped up judgment on someone before they've had the opportunity to hear of God's love and his goodness toward them. In other words, why would you condemn them before you give them the opportunity to repent? Verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? I mean, the fact that they freak out over your tongues and they think you're crazy is proof that they're unfamiliar with the things of the Spirit. But is that the first impression you want to make? Do you want to highlight their judgment? Or do you want to build a bridge to them and teach them about God's love? Obviously, you want to do the latter. Don't scare them before you try to reach them. That's what he's saying. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Though tongues is confusing to an unbeliever, prophecy is clear and compelling and convicting. A word of God speaks truth. In the church's public gatherings, the gift of prophecy is preferable to tongues. The word of the Lord utters truth. And people are built up and they're stirred up and they're cheered up. And the same happens when we teach the Scripture on Sunday morning. For the Bible is nothing but prophecy that's been penned. Through it all, we get built up. And this is why at Calvary Chapel, our public gatherings are devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. Thus, verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now apparently, in contrast to the large public meetings, the church at Corinth also loved to meet together in small groups. And they had an informal structure where everyone participated. You could come with a short teaching, or with a revelation, or with a song of praise, etc., etc., 
It was kind of a spiritual free-for-all. And that would have been okay had it truly been for all. But you see, their gatherings were being dominated by a few spiritual show-offs. Church meetings needed some structure and some discernment and some restraint and a whole lot of love. And so first here, Paul adds the structure, verse 27. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. I've attended charismatic meetings where everyone started speaking and singing in tongues simultaneously. I mean, all at once. It was like a concert of tongues. And yet our passage teaches us that that's not a biblical practice. Each of us should take a turn. The use of the gift of tongues should be followed by the interpretation of that tongue. He says, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there's no one present who can interpret the tongue, then that's enough of the gift for that night. Notice a couple of points here. First, the person with the tongues has the on and off switch. You need to know that. See, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. That means that he can. When you speak in tongues, the Spirit provokes the utterance, but you still control the volume and the reverb and the on and off, the mute button. I recall one misguided friend of mine. He was, said he was standing next to his coworker where he was employed. He said he suddenly got the urge to speak in tongues. And so he just blurted it out. He scared his poor co-worker to death. And to make matters worse, he had the audacity to blame his impulsiveness and his indiscretion on the Lord. He told me, he said, I just couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit made me do it. No, he didn't. Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit doesn't force you to speak. He enables you, but you supply the sensitivity to the situation. Too many times, a beautiful meeting has been interrupted by an errant blast of tongues. Jumping ahead to verse 32, Paul says of the gift of prophecy, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This also applies to the gift of tongues. And then verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Now realize the gift of prophecy, as with all the spiritual gifts, is subject to human error at times. Oh, in Jeremiah 14, verse 14, the prophet said, And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Now hopefully people who prophesy in church, I hope the deliberate deceit, is few and far between. But we all can be self-deceived. I, I know of well-meaning believers. You can get worked up into an emotional lather. And you can mistake your own imagination for a message from God. This is why prophecies need to be judged. I know people who've made major life decisions on what they thought was a prophecy. That wasn't. We need to put all prophecy to a test. Does it correspond with Scripture? And has it been confirmed to you by the same Spirit who gave it to Him? 1 Thessalonians 5 provides us the balance. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. 
But test all things, hold fast what is good. And then verse 30, But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Whenever someone speaks in a public gathering of the church or in a small group, it needs to be done in a controlled and orderly manner. And apparently in Corinth, things were getting wild. Each person needs to show restraint and take a turn. The idea of our gathering is for us to learn from one, from, from one another. He says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And in all the churches of the saints. In fact, the very first time you see the Holy Spirit in Scripture is Genesis 1, verse 2. There the earth is without form and void. Darkness is on the face of the deep. That is until the Spirit hovers over the water and He brings order out of chaos. See, where there's no order, people tend to get hurt. You've heard of folks being stampeded at a soccer match. It happens often in Europe. There's no crowd control. And this can happen at church. Where there's no order, needs go unmet. People get neglected. When there's no organization, people can get hurt. This is why God is into order, because God loves people. And speaking of order, verse 34 tells us, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. That's a popular verse these days. Now remember, Paul has already qualified this statement. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, he mentioned women praying and prophesying in church, and he had no problem with it. Apparently, then, this is not an absolute prohibition. It doesn't mean that a woman should never open her mouth in church. Again, it comes back to time and to place. It could be that in regards to these vocal gifts... The ladies in Corinth had gotten carried away and they were usurping the authority of the male leaders. The Corinthian women needed to remember what Paul had said earlier, that in the church and in the home, men should lovingly lead and the women should willingly let them. This is why he adds in verse 34, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, Let them ask their own husbands at home. Wow, that supports his leadership. That puts him in a place of of wanting to and needing to teach them. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Angry and argumentative women are a blight on any church. Angry and argumentative men are a blight on the church too. But understand, if the sisters of the church clamor for leadership, what will the brothers do? They'll never step up. Why? Boys are taught from an early age never to fight with girls. So ladies, if you want to fight for leadership, you know what your man will do? He'll just give it to you. He'll vacate. He'll just go to the garage or take up golf or work long hours. He's not going to fight you for it. He'll just vacate. That's why whenever you see loving male leaders you'll find wise women who realized they needed to take a step back so that their men would step up. 
In spiritual matters, God wants the men to lead, but how the women treat them often dictates if they do. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? See, the Corinthians were thinking that they were a special case. Paul reminds them, though, that Christianity isn't their exclusive property. Corinth wasn't the birthplace of the Bible. They're no exception, and neither are we. Every church is subject to the truth that Jesus taught the apostles and is now embodied in the New Testament. The truths that Paul expounds apply to all churches in all generations. No church is exempt. He closes chapter 14. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Never doubt Paul's recognition of what he had written. He knew he was pinning sacred scripture. So much so, here he tells his detractors that if you're really spiritual, you'll agree that what I've written is the very word of God. And then he says, but if anyone is ignorant, just let him be ignorant. Finally, he sums up his theme throughout chapter 14. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, let me close with this thought. It's true that chaos is our enemy and that order is important. But before Paul insists on decency and order... He writes these words, let all things be done. See, Paul is writing to a church who had abused the gifts. But to abuse the gifts, you have to use the gifts. Whereas we are probably a church who could use the gifts a little more, I think. We need to make room in church life for spiritual gifts, for tongues, and for prophecy, and for interpretation. It should be our challenge in the coming days.